Welcome to Rebels with a Purpose, powered by the voices of Catapult X, who are mobilizing capital, technology, people, and heart to solve the world's biggest challenges. In this podcast, we pose five questions to leaders who are changing the world and its systems. I'm your host, Kate Byrne, CEO of Catapult X. I'm excited to dive in with James Ehrlich, a serial clean tech entrepreneur and entrepreneur in residence at Stanford. As founder of Regen Villages, James is reimagining how we live together in self-sustaining communities where neighborhoods will create their own power and food. James, hey, so great to see you. You too. Thanks for having me. Believe me, it is my pleasure. How are you doing out there in California with all the smoke and everything? Well, we're, we're absolutely living climate change. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it's uh, epic drought and fires. And where there aren't fires, there's just uh, acrid smoke. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, an incredible thing, actually, when the smoke clears a little bit, to be able to go outside and, and breathe and appreciate the fact that on a day-to-day basis that you just take it for granted. So, so these, are, these are changing times dynamically. Definitely. And I wanted, I want to do a deeper dive into that too, because I'm on the other end now, having made the cross country drive to Charlottesville, Virginia, and I've never seen rain like this in my life. Thunder, lightning, flash floods everywhere, hurricanes, tornadoes touching down in Philadelphia, earthquakes, poor Haiti yet again. There are so many signals that this is real and it's, it's beyond crisis. It's like cataclysmic crisis in so many ways. But listen, what I wanted to do first was I'd love for you to share your story about your journey and how you came to be where you are. Uh, I always think it's really insightful and it just, it's so fun to hear people paint the picture of their lives. I appreciate that. It's a long and, and circuitous route because I was born and raised in, in New York City. So mm-hmm. I have this kind of urban, how you doing uh, kind of background, you know, forget about it, you know, kind of thing. Um, so I can kick into it pretty easily if I, if I need to. But I uh, got involved, you know, at a very young age with computers because I was interested in lighting and lighting design. And so I was doing that in the music industry. And it was a really lovely moment. Uh, uh, but then I got really interested in video game design and video game development. And um, when I finished my undergrad degree at New York University, a combination computer science and, and media tech, I moved out to Northern California to start a software company with some friends. We were doing, at the time, visual effects for motion pictures and TV commercials. And this was the, the new era of digital special effects, really. And at the same time, we were doing video game design platform development, so software development company, basically. But where I was located in beautiful Marin County, I was surrounded by these stunningly gorgeous, uh, organic, biodynamic, small plot family farms and started to learn about the work of Rudolf Steiner and Buckminster Fuller and uh, Bill Mollison on this idea of what's called permaculture and food forests. And I was really enjoying these incredible farm-to-table meals and just feeling happy and healthy and loving life. And I started to film the stories, case study research of these family farmers and tracking where the food was going. I'm really a foodie at the end of the day. To these places, these schools, elder care, 
uh, restaurants. And that actually led to my next entrepreneurial adventure, which was producing a public television cooking show called Organic Living. And we had a sister TV series called Hippie Gourmet. And uh, <laughs> it was a fun time. But the word organic, get this, literally market tested uh, as manure or compost back in the year 2000, 2001. Can you imagine in just a few short years how that became a global brand that represents clean and fresh and healthy? Uh, but in any case, the show, our TV series, Organic Living, reached about 35 million homes a week on national public television. I had a best-selling companion, a cookbook that I co-authored on Hachette uh, that came out in 2007. But the stories were really also about place. They were really about these eco-villages and intentional communities and co-living collaboratives where, where these multi-generational, multicultural, different socioeconomic level families had come together to build and create these very sustainable, but also very resilient neighborhoods. And that really just like something clicked in me. And so when I came to Stanford University in 2012, I was armed kind of with this master's thesis for uh, could we create a software dialogue with the natural world? And so I was inspired by this work of Dr. Suzanne Simard, who's a professor at the University of British Columbia, on this idea of mycelial mycorrhizal networks under the forest floor that are essentially a conveyor belt, a broker, if you will, a ledger uh, under the forest floor across species that convey everything, sugar, minerals, carbon, even water allotments, and that it's this lovely long-term ledger under the forest floor uh, that's electrochemically signaled, but that's in support of biodiversity. So that was something that just said to me, okay, this is the kernel of a village OS, a village operating system. Right. And so I, I initiated this research at Stanford, and then in 2016, we founded a, a for-profit spinoff company uh, called Regen Villages, um, which is this lovely impact EU entity that we created as a Dutch holding company. And very blessed to have investors, family office investors like Tarald Neustad, who, who came in early and said, I believe in this idea, um, third generation affordable housing developer in Norway, I'd love to be able to support the right kind of neighborhood developments. And so uh, Regen Villages was born, and that's something significant because between 2016 and today, we've essentially built a global brand of this understanding of the kind of work that we're doing. We have um, amazing outreach with communities, landowners, governments, and have been making amazing progress with our Village OS software to, to get it to a place where it can design and then eventually operate these, uh, these very beautiful self-reliant neighborhoods. So I love that. And I love how you connected those dots, right? And said, okay, if this, then that. Talk a little bit about the region village itself. So, you know, once this OS comes to life and really gets plugged in, what does that look like day in the life? So day in the life of, of living in a regen village is essentially this idea of near suburban or peri-urban or even rural, beautiful, complete neighborhood infrastructure where you're living in a modern 
energy positive passive home uh, or apartment, you know, but it's made of circular building materials like mass timber or cross laminated timber or, or hemp and hemp create a combination of those things. Um, so you, you just feel healthy and you're happy because you're living in this very dignified, very beautiful place, number one. But you're then in a neighborhood that's designed for being a full menu as much as possible nutritionally. Mm-hmm. So you have soil-based farming, biodiverse, biodynamic. You have animal husbandry. You have aquaponic systems for different kinds of fish and other kinds of, of aquatic protein. You have the circularity in year-round farming with controlled environment greenhouses, so both outdoor farming and indoor farming. But the idea really is when you open your door, you see where your food is coming from. You see where your clean water is coming from, that the energy is generated from renewable, diverse renewable sources and shared uh, across your neighborhood and your community through these microgrids. But also that your waste is turned into an asset class, that Ah. we digest waste and turn it into phosphorus and nitrogen and inert plastics and water, all those different things um, that you don't need to pump down a sewer, for instance. So the idea really is that you're living in a neighborhood that's got your back, that's nurturing you, that's supporting your flourishing. I was just going to say, and the other thing to me that strikes me is in this day and age when everyone is, is craving either control or certainty, right? There's been so much change. To your point that I've got your backness, that provides a certain sense of certainty. You know where the food's coming. You know what it's gone through. You know who the neighbors are. You know that there's a place for you and you will have a role just as others will. But you won't have to do it all, which I think is another really big piece, right? That everyone's just so tapped out, feeling like they've got to be all things to all people. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the key things that we that our research showed was, first of all, that climate change is real, that it's happening, that these anomalies are real, that they're happening. Also, that technology in Moore's Law is getting to a place where there's going to be less employment, not more employment, which means that we have to really start to think from a compassion perspective, how do we bridge kind of a universal basic income with how you live and where you live, uh, but also that you can live in a neighborhood where you don't have to be a farmer, you don't have to be an engineer, that, the, that there's managed services and amenities that your monthly association fee or UBI contribution, whatever it may be, can go to support. So we've really been thinking about the full stack uh, human condition in terms of nurturing and in terms of supporting humanity in very dynamically changing times. I know that there have been a, there was an era or a belief at one point that there would be more and more people moving to cities. My sense is more and more people are moving out of cities. So is there a way that we could do the same thing within a city to help make it uh, feel either safer, greater certainty, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, so listen, I grew up in New York City. I still have family there. I'm not anti-city, okay? I get it. Oh, no, I know. Nor am I. I'm I'm just, you know, from a resiliency perspective, when things break in an urban environment, they typically break very badly for a lot of people at the same time. Right. And, and there's, then there's a cascading and domino effect 
if a single transformer goes out, you know, an, an entire district, or sometimes, you know, the half of the eastern seaboard can go out because of yeah. one uh, failure that becomes catastrophic. And that's one of the things that we really want to focus on outside of cities is this idea of this hyper resiliency in your own footprint. I call it Amish tech, to be perfectly honest. You know, in Pennsylvania, when the power goes out, for the Amish, it's Tuesday. Like, in other words, it doesn't matter to them, right? So right. Um, I love that idea. I love the fact that there's the strength and resiliency and that we can use technology as a means to an end for this kind of thing. Now, we can then take pieces of that and bring it back into urban environments. For instance, you can right. have car-free areas in cities that then are capable of replanting and regrowing um, urban forestry uh, that's, that's edible. You can have these atriums and these, these other components. I call them really um, overlays that can be generating power, purifying water, um, digesting waste, but doing it kind of really from a neighborhood scale, a neighborhood perspective. That's really where I think cities are going to go in any case, because you have to look at the future of mobility, the future of logistics. And, and if you just look at what's happened now in probably in any urban area is that because of, of COVID, a lot of, of the boulevards have closed down to street traffic so that the restaurants and the shops and, and, and the galleries, whatever, can pour out onto the streets. That's like this whole new awakening of the city becoming a renaissance of marriage between natural circularity and, and, and urban life. But I strongly believe, let me just put it that way, that because we only occupy 2 or 3% of the available landmass on Earth as a species, that this idea of living in cities has been sold to us, okay? Mm. And that more and more people are beginning to wake up to the fact that they can work effectively at a distance from a city, they can live effectively at a distance from a city, they can have the city on their own terms when they need to, culturally or otherwise. Um, but moreover, that we can, most importantly, replace suburban sprawl that's, that's paving over farmland and create a one-third, two-third mix, one-third new-build housing to two-thirds yeah. open space. Yeah. And that math really works well for respecting the legacy of those family farms and also creating very beautiful new neighborhoods. So that's a really our goal. And that, and that just sense of, um, I'm going to say gentility. It just having actually moved just recently out of the Bay area, I feel I'm experiencing that a bit here. Uh, everything's so green. I've had no traffic. Um, there's a flow, there's an ease, everything just sort of feels easier and more comfortable. And, uh, at the same time, I'm getting probably even more done because I'm not as exhausted. Right. And mentally, there's just that sense, that sense of well-being that comes into play as well. And there's the other point that I just want to make is that my current affiliation at Stanford, because I'm still affiliated with Stanford University, is actually in the School of Medicine. So I moved myself, you know, along the progression uh, through the School of Mechanical Engineering, the nuts and bolts, really, behind Regen Villages, to the School of Medicine, where I'm part of now what's called the Flourishing Project, which is really about 
What can we do to set the circumstances for long-term healthy outcomes? And so my research really parallels the Blue Zone research, which has to do with this idea of, of people living to 110 plus years old, never seeing doctor, never taking pharmaceuticals, but just living close to the land and close to community. And these are the things actually that turn out to be the markers for longevity because of people's understanding of their relationship with natural symbiosis, that, we're, that we are creatures on a planet. And we have done an amazing thing to disassociate ourselves from our ecosystem. But now there's, a, a, again, this renaissance in understanding that when we get back to nature, when we get closer to nature, that it's, it's so impactful for how kids learn, it's impactful for seniors, it's impactful for multi-generational communities to come together. All of these things get fixed. Just like uh, when you have a biodiverse situation, it is restorative right. to the land. It's also restorative to us. Right. So I want you to, I don't know if the word settle is correct, but we've been having a debate back and forth here at, uh, at Catapult X about the difference between thriving and flourishing. Is there one that's healthier, more aggressive, flourishing? Is it more nurturing? What? How do you see those two things being different, if they are? And you may say, okay, they're not. It's an interesting distinction. I, I have to kind of ponder it a little bit, to be perfectly honest. Because, yeah, I, I think that there is a distinction between them. But first and foremost, in order to set the circumstance to either thrive or flourish, you have to answer for the basic Maslow of hierarchical needs, right? Which is right. having your basic human needs met. Now, I add to that a new layer of good Wi-Fi and espresso. Um, that's just my <laughs> personal addition to, to the Maslow scheme of things. But, but all kidding aside, that when you answer at the neighborhood scale for clean water, clean energy, delicious food that's in abundance, um, that your waste has turned into resources, that you feel like you're part of the symbiosis, that that spurs compassion, that spurs generosity. And that is, a, I think, a key component of thriving. Because when you're thriving, you, you're capable of, of giving back. Um, right. and, and, then, and then flourishing, I look at as being related to um, positive long-term externalities. That's what we call like a spreadsheet of what does this village or new neighborhood look like 50 years from now? So for instance, you plant a, an apple tree and it's thriving and it starts to fruit, right? And that's fantastic five, six years later. But it really starts to burst like fireworks and flourish about a decade in, especially ah, if it's connected okay. to other... Um, symbiotic cultivars in the community. So right. that would be my distinction between thriving and, and flourishing. Okay, thank you. I'm going to share that because it's been something that we've gone back and forth every time we bring it up. There's at least a 20-minute debate about it. Uh, so if you look back over the last five years, right, what have been some of the biggest surprises you've encountered in your work and, and just in life? 
Well, uh, you could probably see the brick marks on my forehead uh, <laughs> of, of, of fighting the good fight, you know, of, of first of all, to be perfectly honest, you know, we were waving this flag a decade ago uh, at Stanford about the fact that climate change is real. And not only that, but that the, that the IPCC reports, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that their reports were actually really being watered down through something called consensus, right? So you have peer-reviewed research, peer-reviewed studies, which basically said, you know, the MAIRD is going to hit the fan, okay? It's happening. Um, then you've got industry, and you've got the various um, supply chain folks. You've got all the different groups and interests that, that, that get to those researchers in the IPCC and convince them to change the language, literally, to make that sound not so bad, not so terrifying. Um, and that's what's happened over a period of a time. When I first started doing this research and, it's, and I first started getting you know, this awareness, they said we had about 25 years left before the potential for global civilization collapse. And then the most recent one was saying something like half that time. And you know, talking to my colleagues at Stanford and other universities around the world, they said it's ridiculous. Maybe we'll be lucky if we have 18 months. Now you see what's happening because of this exponential tidal wave in, in climate change anomalies. It's happening at you know at breakneck speed. So five years ago, I really thought that we had this, you know, we were going to be much further along now than we are in some ways in terms of our actual physical developments of these neighborhoods. Uh, I also felt that we were going to be able to to get the the requisite funding that we needed to get these developments going. Um, at the same time, you know, we've battled the status quo, the status quo in terms of urban development, the status quo in terms of material that is not the best for 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 the environment, and those companies that continue to rinse and repeat in the way they build and develop. So, yes, it's been discouraging in that way. Uh, and I don't want to be that person who says, I told you so, right? That doesn't help me or the planet, right? right? But at the same time, COVID has already started to prove the fact that our thesis is correct, that people can live and work quite effectively at a distance from their office and from cities, that we can actually live in these neighborhoods and that there's a, a high value and demand for these kinds of communities outside of cities. So those things are beginning to really come to the fore. And we've had uptake now with real big institutional investors whose limited partners happen to be sovereign wealth and pension funds who now are forced to look at investing with through the lens of ESG, SDG, and, and green transition commitments. So there's the good, bad, and the ugly that we've experienced and in different forms and in different scales and ratios over the last five years. But I've devoted my life to this mission, okay? I gave up a very high paying senior level position at Stanford University to start up a impact uh, for-profit company that could really meet all of those goals. Um, Regen Villages literally represents all of the 17 sustainable development goals under one umbrella. And we've become part of the UN Climate Change Secretariat Resilience Lab. We've been an active member of the European Network for Rural Development, 
an active member of the European Commission on Smart Rural Villages, and most recently participating in the new uh, EU Bauhaus uh, Roundtable. Uh, and so we've been active in the EU community. And I got on a plane and I flew to Europe for a reason six years ago, seven years ago now, because of the fact that I understood that eco-villages, that there's a rich cultural history. I also understood that their family office money and, and investment could come more easily than here at Silicon Valley. And also that we could work our way through Brussels and the regional mm -hmm. seats of power in Europe to convince them that there's a better way forward uh, for the urgent housing developments that they need. And that's really begun now to take hold, fortunately. Which is fantastic. So do you think we can ever break through the extraordinary ego that is the U.S. and learn? I mean, will different municipalities and governments and such learn from the EU? Because to your point, the EU is much farther ahead. I would say yes. Uh, we're, I think we're, we're fortunate right now to have uh, a Biden-Harris administration that is absolutely uh, focused on uh, a multi-trillion dollar uh, infrastructure package that has a heart and soul for opportunity zones. These opportunity zones are downtrodden areas. Maybe they had coal, maybe they had natural gas, maybe they had other kinds of, of industries that have gone away. And so you're left with very hardy, resilient people and communities, but don't have access to employment. They don't have access to quality, dignified living conditions. And, and so I really feel that there's this, this, this major opportunity now here in the U.S. To, to set things straight and to move things forward along those lines. So we're a Dutch holding company. We have a Swedish office based in Malmo. We have a U.K. office in London. We have a subsidiary here in Silicon Valley, a subsidiary in Canada, and most recently we opened up an office in Santiago in Chile. So yes. we're an incredibly strange multinational startup um, <laughs> because we're surrounded by these people who want region villages so badly that they're willing to just work and do whatever they possibly can in their country, in their region, to bring this forward. So James, you talked a little bit mentioned opportunity zones. Initially, everybody was, yay, opportunity zones. Then there were those who were naysayers. And I'm curious what you say to the naysayers or say, oh, opportunity zone, that's just a whole real estate development greenwashing. Well, it has been. I mean, there's been a lot of, I would say, uh, nefarious activity, let's put it that way, mm -hmm. around developers who woo their way into with their ability and their political influence to get land granted to them right. for opportunity zones on the promise that they're going to build X amount of social or affordable housing. And at the end of the day, it's really just a commercial retail with a small flavor of maybe uh, eight or 10%, if you're lucky, of affordable housing, um, not right. even you know, social access. Uh, we're taking quite of a different approach, and we're thinking that that there's there's a lot of really great industrial players. We're in conversation. We've been in conversation now for the last couple of years with Toyota Tusha, uh, Toyota North America, which is which is a wonderful group of folks who are really interested in uh, these opportunity zones that they have 
workers on assembly lines who have difficulty affording housing, um, but also that they're recognizing that there's a shift in the future of mobility and that this next industrial revolution is going to really be about earthen circular building material housing, potentially. And so they're, they're showing an interest in this kind of development and construction, uh, but also that we can look at creating very beautiful, essentially town infrastructure that can be uh, self-reliant in its food, water, energy, and waste complexes. And when we do that, that it is a proof of reducing burdens on government, local, regional, national, because we actually reduce then burdens on healthcare systems. We reduce burdens on um, insurance companies and banks. We, we reduce burdens across the board in terms of just brokering peaceful, happy places. That is a huge opportunity and a hopeful future of where we are right now. Yeah, that's, you just said it, actually. It's the broader-based definition of opportunity across such a broad swath of different areas, every touch point in so many ways. So what do you think is true now that won't be necessarily true in five years? Like, What exists that you think won't, and I hope you don't say us, um, but in the next five years? Yeah, the one thing you know about me, I'm sure you know already, is that I'm an infant optimist. I just, we have to be hopeful, you know, for our future, for our kids' future, for progeny, for our planet's health and well-being, that we have to be hopeful. That is our purpose for being on earth, is to exact this kind of hopefulness and and make things better for the next folks who've come, right? Um, So what are some of the things that I think that are here today, but won't be here tomorrow? Let's start with mobility. I don't think that that car ownership will will exist probably within the next decade. I think it's going to be shared level five autonomous uh, transit. I think it's going to be drone deliveries and drone taxis, these EV tall kinds of vehicles, and that the the logistics are going to change. Instead of relying on things produced, manufactured, packaged, whatever it is um, across oceans with big shipping lanes, that we are more local and regional and our ability to produce and nurture and take care. I, I believe wholeheartedly that the future of employment is going to change and that the hopeful outcome of this will be the redefinition of work to self-worth. That you wake up in the morning, you've got really interesting things that you want to work on, you're excited about the day ahead, that you're working in collaboration with people that are on the same team to focus on these urgent things. You happen to live in a regen village or regen village-like neighborhood uh, where you have your basic needs being met. So you can think big thoughts. And that's the hopeful concept of the downturn in current industries and jobs because automation is going to replace those things. It's clear. I know. And the truth is that we we see this, we know this, and yet just trying to get people comfortable and reskilled and understanding, it doesn't mean it's the end of you. It's a shift of you. It's an evolution of you. There's With it are going to come other opportunities, perhaps. It might be a little bit harder to come by, but... 
I, you know, the thing is, it's the adage of the truck driver or the taxi driver or the lorry driver, whatever it is, that is not going to become a roboticist or a software developer, uh, but rather maybe they had an ambition that got kind of quashed as a child to be a painter or a sculptor or to put on performances or to bake or to create artisanal ingredients for things or uh, to work on building things in a, in a kind of maker lab. You just never know, in other words, where the human spirit will take you when you are allowed to be who you really want to be. In another episode, we had a conversation with Adam Paris about exactly this is this this renaissance of you this reimagination of yourself with great freedom that enables you to access parts of yourself that you didn't even know existed or you did but you would you would push them down because they weren't uh, part of efficiency or considered to be important or was wasn't a soft skill or a hard skill so i think it'll be a great opportunity for for people to reimagine themselves james talk a little bit about um hyperloop what how does that play come into play? We've had a you know wonderful dialogue and and uh, hopeful collaboration, we think, with with Virgin Hyperloop One. I'm quite interested in this idea of high speed transit between mm -hmm. cities. And what's incredible about Hyperloop in so many ways is that wherever you could imagine an on ramp or off ramp for Hyperloop that could literally be quote unquote, in the middle of nowhere, all of a sudden becomes the middle of somewhere. Because if you if it takes you just a few minutes to go a few hundred kilometers, then all of a sudden your two, three hour commute is, is reduced to, you know, 20 minutes, half hour kind of thing uh, or less. And, and then all of a sudden you could imagine a new build, Regen Village's town complex um, with these hub and spoke four or five hundred home, you know, village neighborhood density around shared services of the food, water, energy, waste complexes. So you can imagine that that sprouting up in the middle of these places would be these very vibrant new build towns and cities. So I'm I'm quite bullish on on Hyperloop. I think that they've got um, a really great chance. To, to prove this out, especially with the right regional, federal government support around the world, because you have to cross so many municipal boundaries to get there yeah. and to make it happen. And, and so you have to be able to convince those folks who, who aren't getting an on-ramp, off-ramp to it, that it's still beneficial for them to have something kind of crossing through their, their territory. But I also think that that when you look at Elon uh, and the Boring Company, that this idea of being able to go under the ground is also a very interesting yes. solution. So I think there's a lot of these different pieces that can play with with a Hyperloop um, system. I also would then talk about Starlink, for instance. So it seems like an Elon day. Why not? Um, <laughs> but you know, this whole idea of the fact that you can be at great distance from an urban area but get better bandwidth than you know at stanford for instance you could just get this right, kind right. of fiber bandwidth when living in some you know rural place so there's so many opportunities where this tech is going to bring us forward and i'm and i'm quite convinced 
that, that Hyperloop is one of those pieces. The other thing I just want to say is from a logistics perspective, we've seen already yeah. the, the implications not only of COVID in terms of bare shelves at the supermarket and on the stores, right? But also, if you right. recall recently, the container ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal, there's a cascading effect all around the world still from that event that in-time production was, was really affected and interrupted. And my point really is that local, regional logistics and industry is going to be this new wave. I'm really, really convinced of it, that there's going to be, again, a balance between these things and what comes through the big ports. Agreed. And also because there's now going to be a newfound relevance because if everyone's experiencing these shortfalls real time, if you're trying to build a house, buy for it, all sorts of different reasons. Again, oddly, similarly to COVID, where it woke our lives up in a lot of ways, unilaterally, this is too. And I think maybe that's a big piece that's going to really help people wake up is this, um, is the context and the relevance and the, the so what, what's in it for me until we get to that other side. Can, can you talk a little bit about Digital Twin too? Yeah, absolutely. The Village OS software uh, kernel, right. interestingly enough, uh, is, is, is codenamed Ducati. Uh, it's codenamed oh. Ducati <laughs> because Ducati was the very first twin engine uh, motorcycle in yep. the world. Um, and so this digital twin, you know, is, 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 it's a really lovely concept where essentially we're capable of using data, kit of parts of relevant building methods, architectural methods, but also engineering methods for a right. village or neighborhood, um, married with spot location place, which is GIS data, geospatial data. And that gets blended together to start to create a essentially a, a, a sim city, a virtual village scenario that uh, allows all the different stakeholders, landowners, government, investors, developers, and most importantly, community members and indigenous voices, especially to contribute that without having to bring in architects, engineers, you know, into that first phase, at least that they can get to consensus and agreement that this kind of development can happen. So the digital twin is then constantly optimizing, simulating and optimizing itself, not only just in the design phase, but then once the, the neighborhood's built and running, you've got this sort of breakaway digital twin that is running all kinds of what ifs. What if there's a flood? What if this pump goes down? What if, you know, the power goes out of the district? But also, even more so, what are the flourishing examples that we can learn from our own village data, but also from anonymized, encrypted data from around the world, from sister villages, of how nice. living can be improved? And to me, that's the power of digital twin and machine learning, that it's in support of human flourishing and living day to day. That you don't need graphs and dashboards and wizards and apps. No, it's not a matter of any of that stuff that's in your face. It's you open your door and here's this basket of unbelievably robust, delicious food being delivered. 
you see where it's just come from. You know, you're drinking a glass of water from the tap that's pure, it's fresh. You know, your energy is renewable, it's, it's consistent, it's safe. You know, all of those things are just happening because of what's under the hood with a digital twin and machine learning and our village OS. Literally takes all the worry and the stress in a lot of ways. I mean, to a degree, off your mind and off your plate. It's, you know, the, the, the magic of machine learning is what we don't know. The magic of machine learning is what we learn and how we can then kind of, I'd say, that, that federated learning across all of those different devices and things and the integration of those previously siloed pieces that can then understand each other's relationship. That's really, really critical in the concept of, of the Village OS. But yes, it's really about the fact that machine learning can do what humans can't do, which is to process endless amounts of data, make it relevant, but also actionable. And, right. and then, you know, because we're seeing now a breed of robots, aren't we? We're seeing all of these like yes. farming robots and, you know, they're pruning, they're picking, they're, there's no fertilizer or, or, or pesticides, herbicides at friggin' lasers, right? To, to quote Austin Powers, you know, they're, <laughs> right. they're using laser beams to, to de-weed. Um, there's so much heavy lifting we don't have to do because there's this beautiful fertile ecosystem that our village OS uh, can talk to those things and that can talk to our village OS. I can work together. What a concept. So what are the key most sort of burning issues that you think people should be thinking about and talking about and possibly doing something about in these next five years? Like the, the key most important questions to be asking ourselves. So here's the thing from our perspective, right, is that it's not a matter of science, technology, or physics anymore about building beautiful new neighborhoods and retrofitting existing neighborhoods. It's a matter of uh, money and political will. And so where people can really contribute and participate most effectively in this moment and going on in the next five years is to advocate with local community government and with regional government and with national government and with legislators especially, that uh, when there's a group that wants to do the right things with creating a new build community in a neighborhood, that they ought to be able to move forward rapidly because there's prefab construction, we already know that, that's a given, that can come to site, essentially built already it just snaps together like lego so that goes up very quickly it's the idea of doing the permaculture design and development maybe that's a six to nine month process but realistically we ought to be able to build uh and have finished move-in of four or five hundred home neighborhoods within a 24 month to 36 month period so between two to three years the finished neighborhood can get built now when you talk to an urban planner or you talk to a local government, they think you like just landed from the spaceship and you're trying to bend <laughs> time-space continuums. But right. that's just not the truth. We know that we can do these things. So it's a matter of engaging in your community and advocating for these kinds of developments and, and standing up for a new way forward. Because when these kinds of communities get built, 
even if you don't live in a regen village, it's already proven that these kinds of communities have a public goodwill radius that can almost be around 25 or 30 kilometers circular radius around these single eco-village communities because they have this ebb and flow of ideas, because they have artisanal ingredients, they have all these different things that are happening there that makes it uh, vibrant. And it also can reshape uh, climate zones. You can get these microclimates when you focus on biodiversity, really like right over an eco-village, strange things happen. You see puffy clouds, you see rainbows. Across the street, you don't see it in a traditional subdivision. You hear and you see pollinators, the bees, the hummingbirds, the, the bats that come, the owls. There's these migration routes uh, for wildlife. And so all of a sudden you start to see pioneer and heirloom growth. In other words, things that you never planted, but that came you know, from an animal that had its, and its seeds and its scat. There's this feeling of excitement and joy to wake up in a neighborhood that you smell the fruit and the flowers and the berries and you just feel safe and secure. So these are the things that we're really talking about in terms of within our grasp, within our power. That's something we can all advocate for. Um, on the financial side, of course, we have now uh, been engaged with these huge institutional investors, as I mentioned, who are willing to underwrite 75 to 100 million euro per neighborhood to get this done. So the landowners coming to us with interest is important, who are willing to partner, put their land up as a form of equity, um, but also the family offices. We're raising the Series A round right now, 16 and a half million euro Series A. We're looking for good lead investors. We're looking for good follow-on investors. The truth is, it's such a small amount of money for the things that we plan to do. Uh, and from that, we'll be able to draw in that big capital that I mentioned, get these pilot communities built in different climate zones around the world. And moreover, that our Village OS software takes it up from there, that it continues to learn and grow and build knowledge based on these climate zones that becomes then relevant for subsequent design and developments of these communities. Which will just continue to, it'll get better and better and better as it gets smarter and smarter. And it's also the thing I love, it's not just one and done, wash, rinse, repeat, right? It's, it's specific to that, um, to that region. So there's that huge, that there's already also inherent in that a cultural footprint that's there and respected. Uh, and embraced and celebrated, which is really lovely. And I love the notion and the idea of it. Um, it's almost to me as though it, it presents and creates and gives a sense of wonder. It reignites that sense of wonder. Wow. The kind of, the kind of experience you have when you see the Grand Canyon, um, the Half Dome. Uh, ocean, phosphorus. I mean, there's so many amazing examples that you see. And I think to be able to have that every day outside your door and frankly, at your kitchen table would be amazing. At your kitchen table, these piazza kitchen meals, where in my experience traveling around the world and doing the case study research on these beautiful 
uh, eco-villages and intentional communities is that you don't even need to speak the same language. Uh, when someone's harvesting something from the field and you wash it and you bring it to the chopping block and you're putting things together and you're, you're learning about someone's recipes, those recipes are the stories of their family's lives and their ancestry. And then when you start to smell things you know, in the pot and things, the aromas are really uh, impactful and they're affecting you. And then the flavors, you allow that to really go in and becomes part of who you are. And then there's this laughter and this joy across these long farm-to-table meals that is, is unparalleled. It's unparalleled. And, and when you feel that, and when you experience that, then everything else is a means to an end. The technology part of it, the village OS part of it, the house, the, you know, all the smart city stuff, that's not really what matters. What matters is our connection to each other, our compassion toward each other, and our mother earth. Those are the most important things. And that allows us then to think big thoughts and to imagine and how we can work together to build and fix these things that we've broken. And that relationship is what's really been broken, moreover, that relationship that we've had um, with the natural world. And when we can do that, we can truly, truly savor the flavor of life all of it it's in its entirety my gosh james thank you so much what a, i am nourished <laughs> um thoroughly by the conversation and the hope and the promise um that this is a very real possibility i i, I have one last question as of late you know everybody's been space travel space travel how does that figure in or does it figure in it does figure in, and, and I'm like I'm not anti-city. I'm not anti-space. Uh, we yeah. live in the in the beautiful cosmos. Just to be transparent, I'm also a senior fellow at NASA Ames Research Center, and have been appointed there since 2009. I clearly am a, a total pain in everyone's ass there because I'm quite clearly a terrestrial <laughs> guy. I'm terrestrial, you know. I I say, hey, we happen to be on a planet right now. Um, it doesn't require any exit velocity. Um, there's no harsh environments to live in or habs at this moment, although with smoky California and, and flooding other areas, the hab life might actually play an active role. Um, we can learn a lot from space research. And conversely, space mm -hmm. research can learn a lot from what we're doing here in Regen Villages. There's, there's, again, symbiosis to that. I'm all in favor of exploration. I'm all in favor of realizing moon bases and Martian habitats, et cetera. Um, so long as it's not just a rinse and repeat extraction model where we're going there to just mine and take things out and create pollution, then I think you know, we're, we're, we're at the wrong end of things uh, in, that, in regards to that. But I, I really feel that uh, I mean, Elon Musk is a big inspiration for me in so many ways because, yeah. because pre-Elon, if you had said to people about electric cars, they would have laughed at you that they run out of power as if a car doesn't run out of gas. If you, if you said, uh, I want to launch a rocket but have the primary booster land with artificial intelligence back where it took off from, people would say, you clearly have lost your mind because that's just not yeah. possible. Again, and right. again, and again, and again, he's, 
he continues to prove that that things are possible, that ingenuity is possible. Uh, and now we just have to take that ingenuity and really focus it on public goodwill and human flourishing and health. And I can really say, quite honestly, that as we build these neighborhoods around the world uh, and we really look at, at the balance between urban and the peri-urban and the rural and near suburban, that we also control for and can create better health. So we don't see these kinds of pandemics. Or if we see something start to crop up, we're able to really get a handle on it. Whereas the idea of 10 billion people living in coastal megacities, it really scares me. I, don't, I just don't think that's the right way forward. So I'm grateful for this time. We're excited that the Catapult community is going so strong uh, now around the world. And we're part of that. It's in our veins. And we feel like Regen Villages is part of Catapult. So we really welcome, however, wherever the folks who've heard this want to join the Regen Villages mission. So thanks again. Wow. I can't wait for us to have um, some of our community dinners at Regen Village tables. So with that, thank you so much, James. Uh, I could go on for hours with you. And I'm just, I'm so excited. And thank you for the work you're doing, seriously. It's making a difference. And it's honestly, just your own enthusiasm is is going to be helping others flourish. And frankly, instilling a sense of wonder and poking a little bit. Think big. Dream big. Why not? You have everything to lose, actually. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you. This is Kate Byrne with Catapult X. Thanks for downloading our podcast, Rebels with a Purpose, available wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our next conversation with Frederick Winter, CEO of Catapult's Accelerator Group, where we'll talk about technology's role in building solutions for energy, ocean, and regenerative agriculture. If you like what you hear in this series, join us in person at our upcoming Future Fest event. Yep, we're back in Oslo, Norway, May 10th to the 13th, 2022.